0: This episode of the CoinWorld Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage and the CoinWorld Premier Slab Coin Holders. Keep your coins protected with the CoinWorld Premier Slab Coin Holders. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. Check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all the other coin collecting accessories at AmosAdvantage.com. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark.
1: Welcome to the Golden cool World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch.
2: And I am Jeff Starr.
1: We are going to be answering some of your questions on this episode. We'd love to hear from all of you, and we've managed to accumulate enough questions that we can fill some airtime hearing from you what you want to know and giving you the best answers that we can. We'll also have our usual bevy of features and hope you enjoy.
2: Yeah, and uh, we just want to make a general reminder that if you're enjoying these podcasts, we sure hope you find us on all the platforms wherever they are. And spread the love, download, share with your friends, subscribe, all that good stuff that gives us the confidence, the joy, the warm, fuzzy feeling that we can come back and do this every week and talk about coins.
1: So, Jeff, what was sort of the tenor of the questions that we got? We're answering a few because our answers tend to be pretty lengthy. What have you noticed that people are really curious about?
2: This actually basically comes from one gentleman, Justin Hutsley, who wrote, Jeff and Chris, I really appreciate your time and the responses to my comments. A little feedback on some of my favorite highlights from the podcast. And then he goes in and lists, you know, he likes the Heads Up, Will We Stop Making Sense interview, the uh, Osborne coinage interview with Ken Shaner since uh, Mr. Hutsley grew up in Cincinnati and he had really never heard of the company before, so he enjoyed that. Really likes the stories of how people get into the hobby, including our backgrounds. And he was inspired by the silver war nickel segments. That is war nickels uh, from World War II that are some percentage of silver. 35. Yes. 35%. These nickels. And he decided to, you know, he's like, oh, I like the good tip on getting on eBay for not much money. I also like the weekly trivia segment and story from the archives. Glad that the answers to the trivia question do not seem rehearsed. It makes me feel better when I don't know and one of you gets stumped as well. Best, Justin. So, in response to that, we we had a little back and forth and just, hey, thanks for listening, all that's all the stuff you hear us say every week. But Justin had some specific questions, and I thought that, you know, Chris and I. Maybe we should weigh in and just sort of just a conversation with Justin, even though he's not here. And we welcome the conversations with you, you know, whoever you are on the other end of of this sound. But Justin says uh, a couple ideas for topics on the show. It was mentioned a while back on the podcast that the U.S. Mint is different than other countries and that the Mint cannot create new products without legislation from Congress. Who brings forward proposals to Congress? who typically drafts legislation, how can citizens impact what happens with regard to future coin programs, and how has this system impacted the or limited the desirability of U.S. modern coins? That's the first question. We'll delve into some others, but let's talk about that. It's a fair point to raise to wonder, okay, Congress is in charge of these, basically, So how does this all happen? And and I just gave the answer away. It, It really comes down to Congress. Now, what you see generally happen, think about the basketball coins that came out this year. Springfield, Massachusetts is, I believe, the home of the National Basketball Hall of Fame. Well, guess what? They, eyeing this anniversary, can approach their local representative, federal representative, not at the state level, obviously, But they can then approach that representative and ask he or she, hey, you know, we have this anniversary coming up. Let's get these on commemorative coins. And it's one of the things that, I mean, that's how the Baseball Hall of Fame happened. I think there was the National Law Enforcement Memorial. Is that in Fort Worth, Texas? The way these work is once the law is passed, part of the law designates a certain dollar amount as a surcharge that's added to the sales price of each coin that surcharge has there are designated recipients of that surcharge once the mint makes its money back from the dye production and the the design process and all that once the expenses for the programs are covered the surcharges are then passed on to the recipient organization Or organizations. In some cases, I think the breast cancer coin, there were like three or four recipients. So basically what you have is the recipient organization says, hey, we have a great idea for a coin. Let's approach our local congressperson. And then the local congressperson wanting to curry favor with uh, their constituents will then begin the process of you know, and, and something like a, a breast cancer topic or a, a military topic where, you know, understandably people have a pride and a an interest in venerating different branches of the service. Like you know, the Marines had a, a big anniversary in two thousand and five, I think it was, and and you know, the legislation for that actually called for five hundred thousand coins and it was changed, it was increased to six hundred thousand. And of course they all sold out. You know, there's so many folks who are Marines or were Marines or have Marines in their family that wanted to buy that coin. So it's all political. And that's why Chris and I have really focused on and and lasered in on this idea that coins are political objects. It takes politics to get them issued. There's politics involved in the design process, you know, whether that's, you know, from the design standpoint, you have the Commission of Fine Arts, which looks at the coin design as designs among many things that, it's, that are under its purview. Federal buildings and other things are part of their role. But more importantly, and more, I guess, focused is the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee, the CCAC. And we've actually had a CCAC member, or a couple of them, uh, Heidi Washweet, I think at the, at, at the time we interviewed her, had been a CCAC member before, but was not currently. We had Dennis Tucker on. Dennis is a current and longtime member of the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee, the CCAC. We've talked a little bit about how the political side really does shape the development of designs you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's the CCAC and the CFA, the Commission of Fine Arts. But ultimately, it is up to the Secretary of the Treasury. But of course, that's a, a political appointment in and of itself. And usually, I mean, we haven't seen, I can't think of any recent situation where there's been much action or change from treasury in regard to coin designs from what the CFA or the CCAC, especially the, the CCAC recommend, but certainly they do hue to the the secretary of the treasury sort of leans on or tries to make sure that the recipient organization, or, you know, in the case of say the gold Reagan, Nancy Reagan, you know, I, I think when she was still, coherent and, and functional and all that before she died. She may have had an imprint and, and, and the opportunity to weigh in on what design she wanted. I'm not really sure. Don't take that as gospel, but whenever you have the subject or the recipient organization of the surcharges, they definitely have a say in what design they want. And, you know, I can recall Donald Scarinci is a, a past CCAC member He has not been shy about voicing his opinions in regards to what designs he likes, what designs he doesn't like, and why things should be used or not used. And sometimes that's, he's been at odds with the recipient organization, you know, the stakeholders, if you will. But generally, those are the the triad that really have the most impact on the design. Unless, of course, there's a design idea that's actually input into the bill, and we saw that with the baseball Hall of Fame coins, I believe, and we saw it with the Basketball Hall of Fame coins when there was this impetus, this requirement to shape them the way they did, which I guess fundamentally somebody might not call that a design issue, but it, it really is you know how how is it going to be presented to the public, and that has ramifications for the striking process for you know what design is going to be chosen for what side and all that. So I sort of lump it in there as that's a, that's a design decision, and again, that was all dictated by legislation. So that's you know the first question we see at other mints, and I I cover mints from all over the world, whether that's Japan or the Netherlands or Germany or Canada or wherever. The U.S. process is very delineated and strict, and and there's there's certain points you got to hit some places. It's not that much. They, you know, you look at somewhere like Canada, they have free reign to do so much what they want to the RCM, the that's the Royal Canadian mint uh, has poured millions of dollars into research and development to strike, you know, everything from, To get rid of milk spots on bullion coins, to add anti-counterfeiting measures and, and devices to silver and gold bullion, even to circulating coins. They've added color to circulating coins. They really have... I don't want to say free reign because it still has to get governmental approval, I believe, from the governor general, and that's why alerts from new circulating coins go through that order-in-council process is what it's called. But for the most part, they get to do what they do, and that's why you see some of the innovation. Now, they've taken it to the extreme, whereas someone, uh, a mint like, say, Latvia or Lithuania, you know, those folks can be creative within reason, but they generally have designs that are more, I would say, traditional, traditional themes. Although the technology that uh, is used is, is very much toward the cutting edge. Some folks like Hungary, for example, uh, we write about Hungarian coins from time to time. There's a pretty narrow band of things that you can get away with or do on a Hungarian coin. They are just more classical in style, if you will. Italy is another country that remains very classical, and in fact, their designers Some of the coins are amazing designs. You think of art and artistry, you think of Italy, of course. But until just recently, I think just a few years ago, they did a colorful coin, which was like, oh my goodness, you know, that's, it's not really groundbreaking in world numismatics. I mean, the the colorful coins have been out for 20, 30 years, but to see that from the Vanguard, the, the old mint, the classic, the traditional, an institution like the Italian statement, that was really revolutionary. And it's just, um, you know, Germany has, has done a few things in the last few years. The polymer rings on their, I think, five and 10 euro, and maybe maybe they've even done a 20 euro now with it, but they did clear polymer rings. They've done blue and red, and there's different colorful rings in that. That was a development of the Bavarian State Mint and Gunther Watt and and a couple other folks. They worked several years on that, and the German market's very traditional in many ways. There's some similarities in the U.S. depending on what range of the market you're talking, lots of the new issue type stuff. There's, you know, there's certainly what I might call kitschy or licensed type stuff that's issued for a segment of that market. But the mainstream collector is very much like the collector in the US. The folks in the US who are upset at the US mint for the basketball colorization, I think there's a similar level of disinterest in and some of those things in the German market, the mainstream market, if you will. So many mints around the world push the barriers. Some are more traditional. It really depends on the country you're talking about, you know, whether they have their own mint, whether they have to contract out, you know, the Austrian mint does Austrian coins, but they've struck coins for Luxembourg and Latvia and some others. It really just depends on The issuing authority, you know, Cook Islands and Fiji and some of these, they're not really striking these collector coins that are out in their name. Those are private mints that are doing that. Those are individuals and companies that are looking for items to market and they are pushing the envelope in that regard so you you can't credit or blame niue or fiji or wherever for some of the stuff in the sense that they've signed over licensing agreements yes they have to approve the designs and and the coins you know for them it is strictly a, a money play whereas In all of this is about making money, right? I mean, you know, both literally and figuratively, but it's just the answer depends on where you're talking. And, you know, we can get into that at another time, but I should let Chris throw his thoughts in.
1: I think your perspective is invaluable on this. And I I would add in a U.S. context, I cover and and have covered for CoinWorld, though Paul Jilks does a lot of the heavy lifting in this area of coverage as well. I've written a number of articles about the sort of legislative process for the creation of commemorative coins and congressional gold medals, really any sort of numismatic legislation or re- legislation that relates to numismatics. I've covered a number of different types of things. And I would also add that collectors can have and have had in the past a pretty significant voice in the legislative process in the sense that they can call the representatives. But, you know, if you read up on former Coin World editor Margot Russell or Beth Deicher, I mean, they both testified in front of Congress um, a number of times, and the government can be quite receptive to collector feedback. And I know that over the decades, CoinWorld has made quite an effort to cultivate relationships at the US Mint and to try to let collectors' voices be heard in a more serious way, though, of course, individual collectors can reach out to their elected representatives. But it's worth considering how collectors can sort of make their voices heard in the legislative process. And then and interfacing with government in other contexts as well is important. I mean, it reminds me you know, of the anti-counterfeiting task force right like in 20 i believe it was in 2018 2017 and 2018 a couple of members of the house of representatives actually wrote letters expressing concern about the prevalence of counterfeiting and i can't say whether or not there was a direct relationship between those letters and the creation of the anti-counterfeiting task force and the anti-counterfeiting education foundation we talked to, to Beth disher in our interviews with her about her role in that organization and in those efforts But it's worth understanding that coins are sort of a product not only of the legislature, but of a sort of bureaucratic process. And collectors can influence that process at various points, whether by contacting their elected representatives or through organizations like the ACTF.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, the sort of direct lobbying to congressional representatives, because as I said earlier, that's involved, you know, the congressional representation for where, you know, the recipient organization, wherever that is, that's definitely involved. We saw a big push from Pennsylvania Association of Numismatists. Is that what PAN stands for? Uh, We saw PAN really pushing the move in regard to the 2021 Morgan and Peace dollar coinage legislation that was introduced a couple years ago a year and a half ago or something and coinworld had an article about it uh, other sources had articles uh, they were back when shows were a thing they were promoting it at shows and in other venues trying to get collectors to contact the representatives in congress because you know knowing that it it takes An act of Congress, literally uh, and figuratively, to get these changes enacted. Justin's question was about how has this system impacted or limited the desirability of US modern coins? And I would say it's one reason you have the themes. There are so many military themes i've said it before on the show in modern commemorative coinage at a time when you know the american soldier and the american uh, foreign policy efforts in in warfare have never been more front of mind than the last 20 years you know with uh, iraq and afghanistan and all these these endeavors so you know some of that the marine coin that's a, a nice wide broad theme you know as i said recently you know it's it's sold like more than the five hundred thousand that was originally part of legislation, they added more and they sold it out. most commemorative coins, regardless of theme, there's the initial interest, there's a push, whether that's I mean I remember the baseball stuff in two thousand and fourteen. I got some, and a couple different ants saw that, and oh, I want to get one, I want to get one, and you know now, if we were to get it, we would pay less on the market than what it would cost to get direct from the mint when it came out. But the flip side is we've been able to enjoy it for these six years and that comes down to collect what you want. Don't necessarily stop yourself from making a purchase. If you realize or think that there might not be the financial gain down the road, you know, if you're, if you're throwing 50, 60 bucks at a, at a one ounce, a proof silver dollar, you know, a hundred and 110 bucks or whatever for the pair, you know, you know, unkin proof and you're a baseball fan you still have that it still has meaning to you okay the other the alternative is to wait 4 or 5 years i mean the market usually settles down i would say 4 to 5 years some things it really takes like 10 years i mean we've some of the um, you know the 2012 s uh silver proof set was an example where the market for that has been up and down and it's been all over and now it's kind of stabilized some of the earlier silver proof sets were really, I mean, I can remember seeing some at a, a garage sale for a cheap amount and I went ahead and got them because I'm like, Hey, you know, they're worth a hundred dollars or whatever. Well, now they're, they're worth more than what I paid for them, but the market has changed because things have settled out. It takes five to 10 years for uh, that to really settle you know it's it's like you know you dig dig a hole and put the dirt back in the hole it's going to be higher than it was before you dug it it's going to take a while to settle that's how the modern commemorative market is what what are your thoughts on the desirability of commemorative coins because of the legislative process and and how designs are chosen
1: i don't know that the legislative process makes any of the coins more desirable i think that what themes are selected and how the coins are executed are really two very different processes, right? I mean, the authorizing legislation usually makes a very general statement about what elements the design should include. Language in the authorizing legislation tends to be pretty vague in order to give creative latitude not only to the artists, but to the CCAC and the CFA, which are charged with culling that list the list of submitted designs into sort of a manageable number for consideration by the secretary of the treasury. So for example, house resolution 4,104, which passed the house a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it'll probably be two or three weeks ago by time of recording, it passed the house. And if it's enacted, Mandate the creation of three commemorative coins honoring the 100th anniversary of the establishment of the Negro Leagues, which were baseball leagues created by people of color because of the segregation in professional baseball that had come about in the late 19th and into the early 20th centuries. And the surcharges from the coin, Jeff mentioned that those surcharges are donated to certain organizations. The surcharges from that are going to be donated to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, which is not too far, Jeff, from your uh, hometown. It's in Kansas City, Missouri. Yes,
2: I've been there, actually, to, well, to obviously to Kansas City, but to that museum. It's a neat place. And when I was there, Buck O'Neill was like... He was still alive, obviously. Uh, he's not now, but he was greeting people and, and I got to you know say hello to him there at the museum. So that was quite quite a treat. But anyway, that money will go there.
1: Yeah. And, and the legislation was introduced by Representative Emanuel Cleaver, who represents Missouri's 5th Congressional District, which I believe most of Kansas City falls into the Missouri 5th. So it sort of makes sense that he would introduce this piece of legislation to promote a museum that's in his home district. But in terms of a design, the legislation mandates that the coins, and again, it, you know, we mentioned that the, the language tends to be fairly broad. It reads, in general, the designs of the coins minted under this act shall be emblematic of the Negro League's baseball museum and its mission to promote tolerance, diversity, and inclusion. You can imagine any number of artists might take this theme and run with it and depict any number of interesting historical episodes or, or sort of scenes inspired by history, they might do something related to the museum. Uh, The point is to give the artists and the organizations that cull the list of designs sort of maximum latitude to sort of interpret that in a way that you know pays respects to the museum. And like I mentioned, the surcharges uh, will be donated. So the legislative process behind commemorative coins is fascinating. And the legislative process is absolutely worth examining. And collectors who are interested should follow the legislation. If you go on to, to websites like congress.gov or GovTrack, there are websites where you can track the progress of legislation. And if you type in, these sites tend to have um, – you know, search boxes where you can type in keywords and it'll, you know, spit out a list of of, uh, relevant legislation. And you can usually find um, pieces of legislation that have been introduced. You can actually, you can look at the legislative process for commemorative coin programs that already exist. If if someone wanted to get a sense of where, you know, say the two silver dollars uh, struck commemorating uh, Benjamin Franklin, the Tercentenary of Benjamin Franklin's birth in 2006, like just to pick a commemorative coin program. You can go back and actually look at that legislative history. You know, you can find the records and see, you know, when it was introduced, if any amendments were added. So for people interested in the legislative history of different coins, it's absolutely something that's worth looking into. So it's funny, commemorative coins are have kind of becoming a theme of this episode because it relates to our uh, trivia question as well. But yep. anyway, we're dwelling in the present and how our government you know, passes laws and ultimately creates coins. But let's jump into the past and take a look at numismatic history, Jeff. What are we looking at this
2: week? Sure. Well, let me do that. Let me say that, you know, I, I had thought we were going to do a bunch of questions from Mr. Hutzley, but, uh, you know, we got so deep into the process. We'll, we'll save a couple of those for down the line. But what was happening this week in numismatic history? So, this is U.S. mint related, and you referenced earlier a little bit about the, how the design process affects Congressional Gold Medals. So on October 14th, 1861, was the first mint sales of bronze duplicates of National Medals to the public. And so, you know, the Congressional Gold Medal and National Medals were were the first CGM, first congressional gold medal was back in the late 1700s around the revolution period. But bronze duplicates of these were not made available for collectors until later, as it turns out this week in 1861. And uh, we spoke recently about our colleague Paul Joke's story about the news in that program, the large three-inch bronze medals, which currently cost $40, $39.95 from the Mint. After 2020, the Mint is raising the price just a little bit. It's going from $40 to four times that, $159.95. So uh, that is going to, we think, kill the market for bronze duplicates. Who is going to want to pay one hundred and sixty dollars for a hunk of bronze when silver medals are around two hundred dollars that that have been issued about that size. So in recent times, I, I should say, it, you know, this year and maybe a year or two ago, the silver versions of some medals have been issued for presidents and that two hundred dollars is uh, that's that's more than I'm going to pay. But there are folks out there that will and and would and have, but uh, for silver, but for a bronze medal that's not an artistic piece, you know that's not a limited edition from you know, a famous sculptor with, uh, you know, ultra high relief and this and that. I mean, there's been some fantastic medals done both in the public sector and the private sector. One of my favorite mint products is the Congressional Gold Medal for the flyer of the spirit of St. Louis, Charles Lindbergh, and the Missouri History Museum has an, uh, or had ex- an exhibit of a bunch of different medals that were given to Lindbergh after his famous flight. One of them is that I believe Laura Garden Frazier designed it. Her husband James may have as well. The bronze medals that were duplicative of that gold medal were sold at a time and and you can't haven't been able to order them from the mint for decades now, but in the marketplace, I can buy a forty year old a sixty year old version of that great design, beautiful design, eagle on the reverse, I believe it is uh you know representing flight and all this and that. For a couple hundred bucks, about the same price that you that the men is now going to be charging for these bronze duplicates. So it was interesting that that was the this week in history. So, what was going on in Coin World history this week? We actually are looking at the October 16, uh, 1985 issue, and this was just a random selection. Just plug it in the old uh, random number generator and see what pops out and the big news on the front page of coin World that week was uh, the fact that President Ronald Reagan on October 1st had signed an executive order banning the importation of the South African Krugerrand beginning on October eleven so you know the Krugerand was the gold coin that launched bullion in a modern sense. You heard, if you listened to our interview with Charles Morgan, uh, the episode before this, you heard Charles discuss why that was chosen as a top 100 modern coin. What happened, uh, given the South African apartheid and everything, the global reaction was to say, hey, we're not going to support South African politicians and and this policy, and one of the ways that they could stop that support was by clamping down on distribution, uh, and in this case, importation of the Krugerrand. Well, what did that do? Interesting. So October 11, 1985 was when that went into effect. The next year, what happened in the U.S.? Gee, oh, I don't know. Maybe the gold American eagle? So it was, uh, here again, it's all politics, all tied together. The banning of the Krugerrand, the big reason was the apartheid, but that also then created a void in the marketplace, and, and that allowed the U.S. Mint to fill it. And uh, you know, here we are, thirty plus years later. What did you find interesting on the letters page, Chris?
1: So there were two letters that jumped out to me. The first one of which actually makes reference to the initiative to create um, American bullion coinage, which obviously the American Eagle silver and gold bullion programs were launched in 1986. So roughly a year after. The edition of CoinWorld that we're reviewing was published. Yes. Um, so a lot of the letters reference CoinWorld's coverage of the development of the program. But the, the first letter is entitled, Tired of Sameness. And it reads, quote, I salute your editorial of September 25th on the Ameri- quote, American alternative, unquote. It's the only commentary I've seen yet that makes sense. I heartily support your idea for American gold coins. I'm so sick of unisex, one-world compromise, sameness. We Americans have lost our individuality and initiative. We just seem to want to lay back and rest on our forefathers' laurels and, quote, be cool, unquote. No, I don't think we Americans are the best in everything, but we don't have to volunteer to be second best. From Bob O'Loughlin of Canoga Park, California. And that stood out to me because it seems like Mr. O'Laughlin. Sort of sees American bullion as a proxy for not only the beauty of American coinage, but sort of sees bullion coinage as a sort of proxy for America, as sort of a, a patriotic initiative. Although his pessimism about sort of about Americans becoming unisex, one-world compromise, those comments seem. little bit out of left field to me. But it's interesting that he sort of saw this program as a way to sort of assert America's role in in sort of world bullion coinage. It was sort of interesting. It, It felt as though he thought of these bullion coins as almost a a, a nation building exercise, which I thought was kind of interesting. And
2: there again, you know, I told somebody today, the idea that coins are political objects, and these reflect the values, and you know, the times in which they were issued, you know, it's interesting, he keys in on the homogeneity, because, you know, I certainly I, I love going to a local restaurant. Course now it's you takeout, but I'll go to McDonald's for breakfast. I did that today, guilty. But I'd like to go sit down and have the Luke's diner experience, like on Gilmore Girls, and and the places <laughs> I places I was this weekend was very much evocative of of Stars Hollow. But I don't want to see the homogeneity. I don't want to see the the sameness. And we are getting away from that with the new design next year on the bullion. So it's interesting that there's a thread that runs all through this. You you said uh, something else stood out. What was that?
1: Yeah, so the the other letter is entitled African Famine Aid, and it reads, my thanks to all the collectors who ordered my books to raise funds for the African Famine Relief in brackets. We raised over $50 for African Famine Relief. If any of you were skeptical about ordering because you thought I was pocketing the money, here's a challenge for you. Make your $4 check or money order payable to, quote, CARE, on all caps, or WORLD, quote, World Vision, and mail it to me. You will receive both my books and get the tax reduction. I will mail your check to the organization of your choice, as listed above, and mail you the books. You will receive Let's Collect Type Coins and History of the 5 Cent Piece. In addition to the books, I have stamp lots and baseball cards. All money goes to African Famine Relief. Paul Anderson... From Laguna Hills, California. This stood out to me because it reminded me of our discussion uh, last week or two weeks ago, uh, where we talked about how numismatists could make donations to their local libraries, whether they're donating numismatic books, whether they're donating a subscription to a numismatic periodical, CoinWorld comes to mind. Uh, we were talking about how numismatists can sort of promote the hobby and sort of give back to their community in some way. And I thought that this was interesting because this was someone who, I- instead of donating books to a local public library or some other local institution, this person was selling books and taking the money and raising it for uh, for a good cause. It's sort of numismatic philanthropy. And, and th- that echoed some of what we talked about sometime in the last two weeks. Whenever it is that we talked about donating numismatic books, th- this yes. just reminded me of that, a, a numismatic form of philanthropy.
2: And and it's interesting because that was one of the things that Justin emailed us about that we didn't mention previously is, you know, he, he saw a word about the Larry Miller collection that is being sold out in um, the gentleman out in Utah, um, co-owner Utah Jazz or something. And the coins are phenomenal. You know, some of the great rarities. It's nice to see the coins as they might have come out of uh, the mint 200 years ago. Very beautiful, reminds me of visiting the Smithsonian Institution, um, so on and so forth, Justin says. And those coins are being sold to build a, a hospital. It's interesting that, you know, this idea of numismatic philanthropy certainly is not dead. It, is, it remains to this day an active part of the hobby and in the world. So very cool.
1: Yeah. So, so I found that really interesting and I had a really good time reading through this old edition of CoinWorld from uh, 1985. But Jeff, outside of this interesting back issue of uh, of our magazine, what else have you been reading?
2: So let me go to the post office and pick up my latest purchase. Uh, hmm. i was actually, I'm very fortunate. A gentleman in North Carolina has for more than a year now when he he's a, a dealer in ephemera and estates. And when he comes across estates with numismatic books, he gives me first dibs on the numismatic books. And this was one of his latest finds. In full disclosure, I haven't read the whole thing. Uh, I barely skimmed it, but boy, does it look interesting. It's Copper Cash and Silver Tails, T-A-E-L-S, The Money of Manchu, China by John E. Sandrock. This was... um, Published in the mid-90s, I think. And mine even, (laughs) interestingly, says To Louise, and it's signed by Mr. Sandrock, and it has a, I would call it a chop mark, if you will, but it's uh, on paper and it's not indented, but it's uh, inked on there, a rectangular, you know, a square with uh, different Chinese characters in it. Uh, The book is just amazing uh, as the the cover says or the the back cover says The book is the story of the monetary aspect of life in China during the Qing dynasty. Its pages are packed with a myriad of numismatic information, much of it previously unreported. Many banknotes are illustrated here for the first time. Also featured is a selection of never-before-published photographs taken by a United States naval officer on the scene before, during, and after the Boxer uprising in that fateful summer of 1900. The book features nine maps, 12 tables, more than 200 photos, and eight appendices relating to the paper money of the Qing dynasty, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's one of these marvelous books that provides the context, uh, for the issue and really gives you, I haven't written about this stuff yet and I don't know that I will, but if I ever do, I have what I need right here to, to become an expert on it. And my gosh, it's, um, you know i'm not a specialist by any means but for what was um, almost you know 30 dollars or so you can find it on amazon or a books or maybe you're you know wherever uh, for about that 30 to 40 bucks and to be fair the book was issued at 44 and change dollars so you know to find this book for 30 to 40 dollars and have What are hundreds of hours of research and information that let's be honest, you know, if I want to find out U.S. coin information, there are dozens of websites, there are apps, there's, you know, CoinRoll has an almanac and we have a website and, you know, there's the grading services and so many places to find information about the story behind the issue. Uh, You know, sometimes some of those sources, depending on where you're looking, you know, might have information that could be called into question or, you know, a lot of places are citing the same thing. And, you know, it's, it was one book that said this 50 years ago. And I mean, you know, that's you've experienced that in your research recently where even experts disagree on some things. So, you know, there's lots of places to find information on U.S. coins in English. I should say (laughs) (laughs) to get information about Chinese numismatics in English, you know, one of the other books on the shelf I'll mention now, and it's a must have Is the um, it's by Kahn, Edward Kahn, a famous collector. And I think he was a banker or a military guy. That's how a lot of these uh, international collections and, and expertise was promoted or, I guess acknowledged or received by English language audiences they they were there for for business or other purposes and became fascinated by the culture and the money and became experts and met all the collectors of the day and all that sort of thing well that's a great book but that's more general. And there's some good information in there. And I bought a reprint. I don't know who made the reprint. It's hard to find the original ones. We have the original one in the coin world library. It's one of those that's like, if it's not in this book, if it's not in that book, my gosh, I, you know, where am I going to find it in English? You know, yeah, there's stuff in Chinese, but am I even going to come across that? Because I don't have Chinese characters on my computer. So, you know, it's one of those deals where I decided for 30 bucks, I'm going to take a flyer on it. I hadn't, I'd never seen the book, never heard of the book. And the guy who told me about this, he was like, yeah, I flipped through there and it looks really interesting. So I'm like, okay, cool. I'll take a chance on it. It's, uh, it's one I don't have. There's always something that can be learned from buying new numismatic literature, whether it's in this case was published 25 years ago, or whether it's something that just came out like with Charles book this year. So I love it. I'm, I'm delighted to have it. And, uh, my gosh, it's, it's fun. And there's lots of good info. How many folks listening are going to go rush out and buy one? Probably not. That's okay. You know, a small number of you may, it's a very specialized field, but I write about world stuff. It's good to have the information when I need it, if I need it. You know, I'm happy to buy books right now as much as to buy coins.
1: Oh, that sounds really fascinating. It's funny, you talking about how many books on Chinese numismatics exist in English, you're posing that question made me think of something that Charles Morgan said in our interview with him about the 100 greatest modern world coins. He said that something that he wrestled with as he was writing that book was, he worried about situating coins in proper cultural context. And since he doesn't know everything about every culture of every society that produced those coins, he was worried about sort of, you know, misinterpreting some cultural element there. So that just, you're saying that just made me think of that. I kind of made that connection. Yeah. It sounds like you found a really interesting book. And, you know, once, uh, once you finish it, I know that I and the listeners would be interested in hearing a little bit more about it. But in the interim, I think I owe you an answer to a question. You do. And uh, for a change, this is one that I know you know the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, that, that, it's, it's, it is a nice change of pace. Anyway,
2: so last episode, we mentioned the Special Olympics silver dollar, and that was not unique, but it was special for one reason in that it was among a small number of U.S. coins to be issued while the person that appeared on the coin was still alive. And so I wanted to know, cause this referred to earlier episodes and I questioned, I said, how many hours of the coin world podcast are out there for you to listen to, for you to hear the answer. And I was a little off. I want to say that I said somewhere like, you know, 80 hours, 85 hours. Yeah. Well, because, uh,
1: because, so, so I thought it was at least 90. And then I, th- I think you thought it was, yeah, I think you th- you like said it was somewhere in the 80s. Yeah. So, yeah,
2: so somewhere, uh, <laughs> somewhere in the
1: 80s, whereas I thought it was at least 90. So yes. then, then the kicker is we actually found out.
2: So our intrepid friend and colleague, Larry Jewett, he decided to look at the rundown and add them up. And he found that I want to say it was 113 hours. That sounds right.
1: Yeah, um, it was 113 hours and change. Yeah. It was it was between 113 and 114, but it the, <laughs> it rounds, I believe, to 113 hours.
2: So you know, you were right. I was wrong.
1: I was closer to being right than you were. <laughs> but, a, but it it's like it's was a cold comfort. But it was more than 90.
2: Way. I mean, that's at it the was. end of the day. You know, that's like pick a number between one and a million, and you know, well, <laughs> if, if <you laughs> not to not have quite gotten that, closed. but. Not quite that. But so anyway, uh, no, you know, I know you know this because we've talked about this before. So tell me what are some of the other uh, U.S. coins to depict living people at the time of their issue? Not folks who had been alive at once, you know, at some time, but were dead when the coins were released. These folks were very much alive, had a pulse when the coins were released.
1: So there are, depending on how you look at it, five or six. And we've actually talked about that ambiguity in a previous episode, and I'll, I'll talk briefly about it uh, here. So there are, are five or six. So the first that we have talked about, because we reviewed this coin on, our, on the podcast, is um, Thomas Edward Kilby, who was the governor of Alabama in 1921 when the Alabama uh, centennial half dollar was struck and released. Uh, That's number one. Number two is Calvin Coolidge, who appeared on the 1926 sesquicentennial, uh, celebrating the sesquicentennial of American independence. He appeared on the half dollar uh, alongside George Washington, which was struck initiated in 1926. Carter Glass, U.S. Senator from Virginia, appeared on the Lynchburg, Virginia sesquicentennial half dollar in 1936. Joseph T. Robinson appeared on the Robinson, Arkansas centennial, also in 1936, I believe. And Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who we talked about in our previous episode, who appeared on the Special Olympics silver commemorative dollar in 1995. And then, so that's five. And then the last one is Nancy Reagan. You mentioned, um, you mentioned her first spouse, a uh, gold coin and medal um, at the top of the show, Jeff. And the reason that we that I described this entry on the list as ambiguous is that technically she died between the time that the legislation authorizing the coins and metals production was passed and when they were actually issued. What it actually was, was so the coins were approved and were uh, released on July 1st of 2016, but Nancy Reagan died on March 6th, 2016, just before the coin was released, but the coin had been approved before. So
2: yeah, the design process was very much going on when she was alive.
1: Yes, yeah, the design process was going on, and though they hadn't been released, they had been approved, and I imagine by March of 2016, the design process was probably over. So they were very close. Oh yeah, if they yeah. hadn't, if they if if they hadn't already started minting the coins, they were very close to that point. So, and my contention,
2: my contention yeah. is because these are gold coins and they were sold at a market price, uh, they would not have been striking them in March you know, or February as it would have been for a, a July release. I just don't see that as feasible. Uh, and no, don't no, think it, it it probably so I don't think they were struck when she was alive, but certainly the idea that, you know, she could have, you know, if she had lasted, you know, lived another four or five months. She could have been still alive when they were released, you know, and as it turns out, that just wasn't the case. I say that doesn't count. You're you're sort of you, eh, you pointed I, out as as an as interesting factoid. I'm not, you know. Okay, you know, it, it could have gone one way,
1: but it didn't. I, I don't know that I view it as it's it's not a I guess a violation of the letter of the law. Um, again, like I said, that's a little bit more ambiguous. But her name often does appear on the list of living people who have appeared on U.S. coins, even though Jeff, as you point out, she wasn't living when the coins were released, so again, it's, uh, as I said, it's ambiguous. And honestly, I, I would actually like to look in this is something I'd like to look into. And maybe I can write an article about it. But I'd like to look into exactly when the mint started striking those coins. Because if, if they started striking them after March sixth, then, you know, then that's one thing. And if they started striking them before March sixth, which again, you said is unlikely, and I think you're probably right. But I just think it'd be interesting, you know, just add another little detail into that story. Sure. But anyway, as you know, Jeff, I'm very interested in classic uh, American commemorative coins, so I appreciated that question.
2: Well, good. Then this week's question is perfectly suited for you. Awesome. I think. Let's hear it. Name the structure on the reverse of the Battle of Antietam commemorative half dollar.
1: Awesome. I love this. Th- that so, That's also a very interesting coin, so I'm, yes, I'm excited. It's a great
2: this design. So and Yeah, it know. is. It, 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 it's,
1: a, it's an interesting design, especially with our sort of public discourse surrounding uh, Confederate monuments and the yes. appearance of Confederates and and the sort of commemoration of the Confederacy. So that is a really good question, Jeff. I'm excited to answer it.
2: So we will have that next episode, but for now we are going to take our leave. We're going to thank you so much for listening this week and communicating with us, sending us your questions. Please do that. Uh, And Mr. Hutzley, we will get to your questions. Some other of your questions later, if you're listening to this, you can tell we love to talk about coins and really explore the various nuances. So we thank you for coming along with us on this journey uh, this week and every other week and uh you know if if you missed a few weeks if you want to uh have a a marathon of those other 113 plus hours of coin oh my god uh my gosh please do that but um you know
1: and remember to keep on listening every week and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast that is the best way for you to support the show and you know and we'd love to to hear from all of you so if you want to reach out to us with suggestions for a segment questions that you'd like to have us answer You know, again, we love to hear from you. And please keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe.
2: But until next time, happy collecting.
0: Thank you for listening to the CoinWorld Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the CoinWorld Podcast was brought to you by the CoinWorld Premier Slab Coin Holders, available at Amos Advantage. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. So head over to AmosAdvantage.com to check out the CoinWorld Premier Slab Coin Holders and all of the other coin collecting accessories available there. That's AmosAdvantage.com.